I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 25th, 2018. Coming up, we zoom around the solar system. First, with Dr. Vicki Hamilton, who talks about the OSIRIS-REx mission to a nearby asteroid. And then with Dr. Kathy Olkin, who takes us on the New Horizons mission to an icy asteroid on the distant edge of the solar system far beyond Pluto. In today's first feature, we hear about NASA's first mission to do a sample return from an asteroid. Our guest is Dr. Vicki Hamilton, a staff scientist at Southwest Research Institute's Boulder office and a member of the mission, which is called OSIRIS-REx. We start with Dr. Hamilton explaining what the name OSIRIS-REx means. OSIRIS-REx is first and foremost, like all good NASA missions, uh, an acronym for the actual purpose of the mission. So what it means is origins, spectral interpretation, resource identification, security, regolith, explorer. <laughs> okay, so that is a mouthful. <laughs> I can see why you go for the acronym <laughs> on that one. And and even then, we sometimes just call it OREx because even OSIRIS-REx gets cumbersome after a while. Other than a long title and an acronym, what is OREx? So OSIRIS-REx is a mission that is designed to go out to what we call a primitive or carbonaceous asteroid. The name of that asteroid is Bennu. And our primary objective is to go collect a piece of that asteroid and bring it back to Earth without it having to be exposed to the Earth's environment the way a meteorite would be. Carbonaceous, is that the same as primitive? Not always to somebody who studies meteorites, but carbonaceous is the, the easy part to answer. It means that it has carbon-bearing compounds or organic compounds, and that is one of the primary things that makes it most interesting. We want from this mission to help understand where we all come from, and we all know that organic compounds are a, a key element of life, as is water. Um, so we're trying to really understand what was going on with water and organic components very, very early in the history of the solar system. It's always still following the water. It huh? is. It really is. The asteroid's name is Bennu. Mm-hmm. Why'd we go to Bennu? Yeah, why go Bennu? Yeah. Well, so we actually had a number of constraints that we used to select the asteroid. So we knew we wanted to go to a carbonaceous asteroid. And so we needed an asteroid that not only was carbonaceous based on telescopic observations from the Earth... We needed to get to one that was in a near-Earth orbit. We needed it to be of just the right size for the finer materials, the sand and things like that, to still be on the asteroid, not have been flung off. We needed to be able to get to this asteroid and get back <laughs> from it with our sample. Right. So by the time you go through this whole long list of criteria for your target, there were really only about five asteroids to choose from, and so Bennu was one of them. It's the Goldilocks asteroids, it, the it ones that are is. just the right size, the right distance. Exactly. And one of the other asteroids is an asteroid called Ryugu, which is the target of a Japanese mission called Hayabusa 2, which is also going on right now. Why all the interest in going to asteroids? I think, you know, we've we've done a lot in the last 
30, 40 years to explore the big planets in our solar system. There are still obviously planets that we really haven't done more than fly by, but they're so far away, they're hard to get to, it takes a long time to get to them. Um, we're also starting to now appreciate the role that the little tiny bodies play in the history of our solar system as well, and the record they preserve mm. that the bigger planets don't. So I think that's why we're we're kind of trying to tackle all things at once. Right. All, the whole scale. Yeah. So OSIRIS-REx is in flight. It launched... Uh... September 2016. Okay. So it's been in flight for more than About a couple two years. years. Yeah. And it has arrived. It has arrived. That was recent. Yeah. You know, unlike a lot of missions where like if you're used to watching Mars missions, there's a day and today is the day we land on Mars. Our arrival at Bennu with OSIRIS-REx has been a very drawn out process. <laughs> it really started way back in August when we first started taking pictures of Bennu. In those pictures, Bennu really kind of looked a lot like a star, other than the fact that it, you know, was moving and right. the stars weren't in the pictures. And so as we got closer and closer, we started getting better and better pictures. We started being able to resolve the boulders and rocks that are on the surface. And then just in the last week, we formally arrived at Bennu when we got to being just a certain distance away and ready to actually start the primary mission. So you, you're there. We are there. And you get to see it. Yes. Does it look like what you expected? <laughs> um I guess it depends on who you ask. <laughs> I don't study asteroids as my primary science, and so I didn't really have a clear expectation of, of what it would look like. I knew that we expected something that was somewhat rocky, that it wasn't going to be very dusty and powdery, and we've actually seen that. But I think if you talk to some people on the team, they'll tell you that Bennu is rockier than they expected it to hmm. be. Uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Again, it kind of depends on what you're trying to do. Um, for some people's science, rocks are, are really interesting and good things and you want to study them. But our fundamental purpose with this mission, as I started with, is to collect a sample. And so we have a sampling head uh, on a big, long arm that has to be able to contact the surface of Bennu and collect our sample. And our sample head can only take in little pebbles and, and dust and dirt that are smaller than two centimeters in size. So we need to make sure there's enough spaces on Bennu somewhere where we can get that sample head down and get those, those smaller pieces of rock. Try to draw us a picture, a verbal picture here <laughs> of how do you get a sample of this asteroid? You know, usually yeah. you might think of you know, someone landing on a surface and picking some things mm -hmm. up and then going. Yeah. yeah. In fact, one of the first things that that's important to say is that we don't land on Bennu. We contact it very, very briefly. And the way we do that is that the spacecraft has a big, long arm on it that you can imagine sort of like if you've seen, you know, the Mars rovers with arms. Mm -hmm. There's a big, long arm on the spacecraft. And out at the end of that arm is our what we call our touch-and-go sample acquisition mechanism. So yet another <laughs> acronym. We call it TAGSAM <laughs> Good. for short. And so that TAGSAM sampling head will be extended out towards the asteroid. Now, the first thing we have to do is get close to the asteroid, and then the spacecraft has to match its rotational speed. So Bennu turns a full rotation. A day on Bennu is only 4.3 Earth hours. So the spacecraft has to approach Bennu, match its rotational rate so that the spot under the spacecraft isn't 
changing. It's floating above a spot. Yeah. And then you have to be able to come in to the asteroid, contact it very, very briefly, during which time a canister of dry nitrogen fires stirring up the surface and causing the rocks and pebbles and all of that to go into the sampling head. And then immediately we back away. So the whole process takes only a few seconds before we back away again from the asteroid and try to get to a very safe position as quickly as possible. How close above the surface is the spacecraft when this happens? Um, About 15 feet, I think, at the end of the arm, so... roughly. So it's really close, it's literally very, just very close. hovering right above the yes. surface and just reaches, it has its arm out. Yep, it has its arm out. The arm is has springs in it. So as the arm contacts the surface, the springs will compress, the spacecraft will know, oh, I've contacted. You've hit something. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not hit, just right. contacted. Just touch. <laughs> you touch know, start, and go. Yes, touch and go, exactly. And how much material do you think you can get off the asteroid? Um, All of our testing on the ground and in airplane simulated zero-G flights and all that suggests that we could get up to a kilogram of material Hmm. if we're very lucky. But we have a requirement, I believe it's for 60 grams, you know, enough that you could hold it, you know, in two hands. But I think if we find the right spot, we'll get substantially more than that. So... You're at the asteroid right now, or the spacecraft is at the Mm -hmm. asteroid. When do you plan to have the sample? So the sample collection won't occur until July of 2020. It was originally scheduled to potentially occur in 2019, but we decided that because nobody has ever operated a spacecraft like this in such a low-gravity environment Hmm. like this asteroid... We wanted to make sure we really, really understood how to navigate the spacecraft in this environment and not rush into sampling before we really needed to. So we're going to spend the next year doing all kinds of characterization of Bennu with the spectrometers and the cameras that are on board, the laser altimeter, and really try to focus our energy for the next year on picking the best possible sampling site and then... In 2020, we'll actually do the sampling, and the sample won't return to Earth until late 2023. 2023. And how does it get back to Earth? Another great question. So after the sampling event, the TAG-SAM sample head, once it's got the sample in it, will get put into the sample return capsule, or the SRC. When OSIRIS-REx comes back to Earth, once we get to the right spot, that sample return capsule will be released from the spacecraft on a ballistic trajectory for Mm. the Earth. It will enter the atmosphere and land in the uh, desert in Utah at the Utah Test and Training Range, and we'll have a team of scientists out there to go recover the capsule and lock it all up, and then it will get shipped to Johnson Space Center in Houston, which is where the capsule will eventually get opened up in a very controlled environment. You don't want to (laughs) contaminate it. You want to see what uh, is originally there. Yeah, exactly. So what is your part on the mission? I actually wear two hats on this mission. I'm a science team co-investigator, and I'm the lead for the spectral analysis working group, which means that I help coordinate the science team members who are analyzing data from our two spectrometers. 
those instruments measure the chemistry and mineralogy of the surface of Bennu and measure the temperature of the surface. I also have a role as the deputy instrument scientist for an instrument called OTIS, or the OSIRIS-REx, thermal emission spectrometer. That's one of those two spectrometers. Mm -hmm. In that role, I also help make sure we're getting the observations we need, that we know how to calibrate the data and produce useful information for the science team. Have you any early results from your first look? Yeah, we actually had some very exciting results very early on in the mission. In short, we went to this asteroid hoping that it would be this carbonaceous material that we were talking about before. And in fact, it looks exactly like that's what we've we've got. So good, good. check mark number one is, you know, we picked the right target. Um, but even more interesting than that, it's not just a carbonaceous asteroid. It's a carbonaceous asteroid with evidence of minerals on its surface that have water in them. Hmm. So oh, Water already. Yes. Yeah, so we're right back to following the water and we found it. Yay. <laughs> Where could people go to find out more about the OSIRIS-REx mission? We have a mission website at the URL asteroidmission.org. Oh, that's an easy one to remember. Yeah. We will happily follow along and cheer along as the arm reaches out to touch an asteroid. Yeah, stay tuned. There's a lot more to come. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, Vicki. Happy to do it. That was Dr. Vicki Hamilton talking about OSIRIS-REx. NASA's first mission to do a sample return from an asteroid. You are listening to How on Earth? The KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Our second spacey feature is about a mission that you might describe as exploring beyond the beyond. The piano-sized, nuclear-powered New Horizons spacecraft flew by Pluto over three years ago and now has its sights set on an even more distant target. To talk about that, we have another local scientist from Southwest Research Institute, Dr. Kathy Olkin, a New Horizons Mission Deputy Project Scientist. Dr. Olkin has some special New Year's Eve plans. I'm going to spend my New Year's with NASA, which is going to be pretty exciting. I'm going to be at the Mission Control Center for the New Horizons Mission, which is at the Applied Physics Lab in Maryland. And we are going to be watching as New Horizons flies past a small icy world in the outer solar system. So New Horizons flew by Pluto back in July of 2015. That's right. And it then zipped on past. And for a lot of people, Pluto is the edge of the solar system. So what more is there to do? Oh, there's so much beyond Pluto in the solar system. There is the Kuiper Belt, for one, which is kind of like an asteroid belt, but way out past Neptune. And so it's got icy, rocky bodies. There's thousands and thousands of them, probably hundreds of thousands of them. We only know about a small fraction of them. And so the New Horizons spacecraft is about a billion miles past Pluto right now and flying through the Kuiper Belt. 
And these objects are like the leftovers from solar system formation that didn't make it into the planets. So by going out into the Kuiper Belt and looking at these objects, we're looking at remnants that didn't turn into planets. We're seeing the building blocks of our planets. We're going to visit one of these Kuiper Belt objects. That's right. The New Horizons spacecraft is going to fly by. And being at Mission Operations Center kind of helps you feel like you're there, I guess. Oh, yeah. You're like at the heart and brains of the spacecraft, you know, seeing all the data come back right away and sending commands. In fact, today, Christmas Day, we are starting our command load that's going to execute all the way through New Year's Eve and through the flyby. So the spacecraft is now on its own, as it were, right? That's right. That's right. We have a special autonomy mode where the spacecraft can take actions on its own if it senses a fault. It has to do this on its own because it's more than 4 billion miles away, and it takes 12 hours for a signal to go round trip from the Earth to the spacecraft and come back. That makes for a slow conversation. A very slow conversation. What is it doing? It's going to give us our first ever close-up look of an object like this. So this is a much smaller object than Pluto. It's mm. probably about 20 miles across, and it's very primordial, it, it, meaning it formed in this location and it stayed in this location probably through its whole existence. And so we're really looking back in time at what these remnants from solar system formation look like. And so we've never seen something like this before. So how is that different from Pluto? So Pluto and the moons around Pluto were formed from a giant impact. And for Ultima Thule, the object we're going to fly by, uh, we don't think anything like that had happened in its past. Also, Pluto is much larger than Ultima, many, many times larger. And it has an atmosphere and it has active geologic processes. We see uh, glacial ices on Pluto and we see mountains. And we know that the uh, molecules and the ices can go into the atmosphere and be transported just like the water cycle here on Earth. Hmm. And we don't believe anything like that happens at Ultima, but we don't know. So it'll be exciting to see what we find out on uh, New Year's. You said the object's called Ultima Thule. Yep, that's right. Which means? Beyond the known. So yeah, like ancient map uh, makers used to put that in the area where they didn't know what was there. (laughs) So So it's beyond the known world. ah, Which it is till we get there. That's right. You said that Pluto has an atmosphere, but ultimately doesn't. How do you know that? You haven't been there yet. Yeah, that's a that's a good question because I don't know it for sure. In fact, we're going to search to see if there is an atmosphere. But based on physics, we probably don't expect there to be an atmosphere because it's smaller and it has less gravity. So it wouldn't be able to retain the atmospheric gases. How did the New Horizons team pick Ultima Thule as a target? We knew before we launched in 2006 that we wanted to fly past an object like this, but we didn't know of one at the time. Hmm. And so we started searches actually in 2004, and then we searched in 2011. We searched again. We used some of the largest telescopes on Earth to search for an object in the outer solar system that the spacecraft could get to. It took a dedicated search by the Hubble Space Telescope in 2014 to find Ultima Thule. And we had found another object 
that we thought we could also fly by, but it was going to take more fuel to get to that mm-hmm. one. And so we decided to fly past Ultima. So what do we know right now before we get there? What do we know about Ultima Thule? Well, we don't know a lot about it. We know its orbit. So we know it's in a circular orbit, and that's telling us that it hasn't moved around a lot in the solar system before. It's not like a comet that's come mm. in close to the sun. So it, it hasn't been heated up and things like that. It hasn't that. been heated up, and so that's why it's been in the cold storage of the outer solar system. And we know how big it is, approximately. It's about 20 miles across. And Mm -hmm. we know that because we observed it pass in front of a star. And actually, we've done this a couple of times. We watched Ultima pass in front of a really distant star. And as the starlight blinks out, because Ultima's in front of it and then comes back, you get an idea of how large it is. Hmm. So the Hubble Space Telescope couldn't see how large it was. No, no. It was just a point of light by the Hubble Space Telescope. The only way we knew that it was a Kuiper Belt object and that we could fly by it was by watching it move relative to the fixed stars. But other than that, it kind of looked like a star. Interesting. So that's what we know. Yes. Yeah, there's some <laughs> things we also may or may not know and we're not sure about. We don't know if it's one object or two. Hmm. From watching it pass in front of a star, it looked like it had an unusual shape. Maybe it has two lobes, kind of like Comet CG that the Rosetta Hmm. spacecraft went by. Or it could be that it's actually two objects that orbit a common center of mass. I can't wait to find out whether it's one object or two. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) So how do you plan for that if you don't know if it's one or two objects? We spend a lot of time thinking about how do we plan for that and how much do we know and what our uncertainties are. So we cover a lot of potential area taking images of where we think the objects will be. Some of our imagers have very large fields of view. And so if it's one object or two, as long as they're relatively close together, which is what it would be, we think, if it is two objects, then you would get it in the same image. And then we have other observations that maybe might be more at risk. What are you looking for with the instruments on New Horizons? So the instruments on New Horizons look for a lot of different things. One of my favorite instruments is part of the Ralph instrument. It's called LISA, and it's an infrared spectrometer, which means we're looking at the spectra. And that tells us about the surface composition. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing the results from that part of Ralph that will tell us what the surface is made of. That type of observation can't be made from the Earth or from the Hubble Space Telescope. It takes Mm. getting a spacecraft there, and so this is a unique opportunity. What kind of things would you expect to see on the surface? We might see the signature of water ice or this uh, reddish material called tholins or a space-weathered surface, which also can appear red. Out in the outer solar system, some larger objects have methane and nitrogen ice, like Pluto, but I wouldn't expect to see it on Ultima because of its small size. But if we did, it'd be very exciting. So those are the types of questions I have, and we won't have answers until after the new year. So getting back then to the new year, what is the new year going to be like? So we fly by 33 minutes after midnight on the East Coast. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. (laughs) And then happy flyby. (laughs) There's going to be images that come down 
before New Year's. So we have what we call fail-safe images. So we have the spacecraft communicates with the deep space network and sends data down before encounter. So we'll have some images, but there won't be a lot of surface resolution. We won't have a lot of detail before the flyby. This Mm. is a small object, but we are flying three times closer than we did at Pluto. So it's going to be a little tricky too. When you're there at the Mission Operations Center, what are you going to be watching? I'm going to be watching the data come down. <laughs> I, I already have in my calendar what time uh, the images come down. And so I've arranged my whole schedule around making sure that I'm there when the data come down to get a, a look at it, to start processing the data, making color images so that we can share them with the public. Because the data comes down in four separate images mm-hmm. that are different colors. Mm-hmm. And you have to merge them to make one color image. And so uh, I expect to be making color images over New Year's. New Year's presents. That's right. Are all the data coming down those days after New Year's? No, we've selected some really high priority data to come down right around New Year's and the days after. We've prioritized data to come down all the way through January and beyond. It's going to take probably at least 20 months to get the data down. 20 months. Yes, yes. Because remember, we're 4 billion miles away. (laughs) So the bit rates are pretty low, but we can be patient. It's taken a long time to get to Ultima, and this is a a unique opportunity. So we're just going to get to be opening these presents day after day after day. (laughs) For many, many months. (laughs) That's right. Is there a way people can join in somehow on what's happening? Yes. Uh, We will be on NASA TV. So you can watch NASA TV online and you can go to nasa.gov and also pluto.jhuapl.edu. So they'll be able to kind of see what's happening as it goes. That's right. We'll be releasing the data, you know, as we get get it down and take a look at it and sharing it with the public so everybody can be excited and see what Ultima looks like. Well, I hope you have a great start of 2019. Thank you, Joel. And thank you very much for being on the show, Kathy. Uh, You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. That was Dr. Kathy Olkin talking about New Horizons, NASA's mission that flew past Pluto three years ago and in a few days on New Year's Eve will fly past Ultima Thule, making it the most distant object ever explored by a spacecraft. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Dwarf Planets. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.